Welcome to the Outperform Cancer podcast, where we identify anti-cancer strategies found in peer-reviewed scientific research. My name is Mary Beth Gilliam, and I'm a metastatic breast cancer patient searching for ways to outperform cancer. I am very grateful for the excellent standard care I've been given, but I'm also not satisfied with standard care results because I think it's possible for cancer patients to do better. And I believe the people who can help us get there are cancer researchers. So in each episode of our podcast, we talk to a well-regarded published researcher who's focused their work on a potential anti-cancer strategy that could be used with conventional treatment. Visit the Outperform Cancer website at outperformcancer.com to see all of our anti-cancer strategies and to sign up for our newsletter, which will alert you to new strategies as they're posted. Today, we're speaking with Professor Dr. Connie Jimenez about high-dose vitamin C. Dr. Jimenez is a professor of translational oncoproteomics and the principal investigator of the Oncoproteomics Laboratory at Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands. She's also the vice president of the European Proteomics Association and co-chair of the Human Proteome Organization, as well as winner of their translational Proteome Science Award. She's authored more than 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers and is an editorial board member of five major proteomic journals. Wow, yes. She is an incredibly accomplished scientist and her brain power is about to help us because Dr. Jimenez's work involves an anti-cancer strategy for us and it's called high-dose intravenous vitamin C. In addition to her laboratory work, where she tested the effect of high-dose vitamin C on 51 different cancer cell lines, she also led and published a meta-analysis in 2001 titled High-Dose Intravenous Vitamin C, a Promising Multi-Targeting Agent in the Treatment of Cancer. This paper could be my all-time favorite because not only does it include 71 preclinical studies, 57 clinical trials, and 24 omics studies in one analysis, but it makes the information easily accessible to cancer patients. So easy, in fact, that there is a color-coded chart organized by standard cancer drugs that allows you to look up your drug and see the results of the intravenous vitamin C research when combined with your drug. I looked up the drug trituzumab because that's part of my standard care therapy. And I found that there's an IVC, intravenous vitamin C, study that was conducted specifically with trituzumab. The study found that IVC made trituzumab more effective. I think that's critical knowledge to have. Now, without further ado, we're gonna to talk to Dr. Connie Jimenez, who will explain IVC and why it's such a powerful anti-cancer strategy. Thanks. Thank you for coming today, Dr. Jimenez. We really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks, Mary Beth. It's my pleasure uh, to be here on your podcast. I'm hoping that you can start us off today just by talking a little bit about your work. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks for the opportunity. So proteomics, uh, it's a research field that focuses on the large-scale unbiased analysis of protein profiles uh, in cells, tissues, body fluids. And oncoproteomics is the application of proteomics to study cancer. And um, well, this is very relevant for patients with cancers because proteins carry out the cellular functions. Proteins determine which pathways are activated in a patient tumor. And uh, for example, whether a tumor is aggressive or benign, whether it spreads or not. And uh, maybe uh, what is maybe uh, more well known is that our genome or DNA, uh, it's heavily uh, aberrant in uh, patient tumors. And that uh, uh, informs on what can happen or predisposition, while the proteome informs on the actual signaling state of a cellular uh, cell or tissue. Now, let me just ask you a quick question because I've been reading a lot about um, the expression of our of our genome. Um, and what I've been hearing is that things can get turned on and they can get turned off. Is that true? And, and is that part of your work to see what's turned on and, and turned off? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, things get turned on and turned off. And it's it's kind of hard. There is not a one-to-one -one relationship from DNA to the messenger molecules, the RNA and protein. Uh, so um, based on DNA alone, it's it's hard to know what's happening or predict what's happening. And this is where the proteome uh, comes in. And maybe also good to realize that most biomarkers that are measured in the clinic are proteins. And proteins are the targets of most uh, anti-cancer targeted therapies, such, such as kinase inhibitors and immune checkpoint inhibitors. So uh, in our oncoproteomics research, we study these protein profiles in cancer cells or tissues. And, uh, and we hope to use this information. We couple it to uh, all kinds of bioinformatic analyses to better understand uh, cancer biology and employ this information to drive improved diagnostics and individualized treatment of patients with cancer. And sounds, uh, yes, that sounds like um, kind of where we're heading in terms of more personalized treatment for patients. Um, you mentioned targeted therapies, which is that first step of of not the widespread traditional chemo, which makes us all so terribly sick um, as it tries to wipe out the cancer. So the targeted therapies, but also kind of the next level perhaps of really understanding how each one of us is, how the tumor for our individual tumors are expressing um, itself and and how it's growing its pathways that it's using for growth is that part of this too is this moving us closer to more personalized cancer treatments uh well yeah i uh i hope so that's what we are uh, aiming for and uh and 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 this is really important because what we see in our own uh, profiling molecular profiling efforts and also what can be seen from the DNA and the RNA levels is that basically every patient tumor is different even though hey, you may have a whole set of colorectal cancer tumor profiles but in the end uh, hey, if you take multiple uh, samples of the same tumor they, they cluster together and every profile is different has different aberrations different 
uh, activation of the pathways, different combinations of parallel activities. And um, so it's very important to basically also have this functional layer of information that we can get from the proteome and the phosphoproteome. And to do this, I have a whole multidisciplinary team of people and not only uh, people with biomedical biology background, but also biochemists, uh, uh, computer science and date, other data analysis people. So it's a whole uh, clinicians, of course, to, to give us the clinical background and to make sure we work on the clinical needs to, um, yeah, it's a whole effort uh, to do this. That's amazing because it, it's actually something that I um, pay a lot of attention to because um, I believe when you're working in a multidisciplinary team, that's what's required to help us move from a free clinical discovery, um, something that was maybe found in a lab uh, in a micro environment, and to move it into a clinical trial, which gets us closer to you know, making it part of standard care. And, and right now that process takes about 15 years, which unfortunately for most cancer patients, it's just too long. We're not gonna be seeing the benefits of those discoveries. So working in multidisciplinary teams is really exciting because it means that that distance uh, in knowledge from your work, which is happening on a micro level to the bigger work in humans that happens, um, that you're all in the same room is that is that true is that what i'm what i'm hearing uh yes indeed that's what you're hearing because it it takes a huge effort to translate findings uh from the lab to the clinic and uh, and it really has to be done in very close collaboration with the clinicians and it will only happen if if we work in the lab really on clinical needs on the right materials of the right quality uh, with good clinical and molecular annotation. So, um, yeah, it's very important. So I, I, I think the, the embedding of my laboratory uh, in an academic hospital, in the Department of Medical Oncology, I, do, I think it's very important to, let's say, to increase chances of, of making these, these translational steps. And, uh, and of, yeah. Uh, that's that's awesome. It's really, it's really encouraging to hear. Um, and, you know, I was, I, I have to say that, you know, I, I reached out to you because the research that you did, uh, a paper that uh, you, you authored um, titled High Dose Intravenous Vitamin C, a Promising Multi-Targeting Agent in the Treatment of Cancer. Um, was it's it's really my favorite study, and I'll tell you, um, I just found it to be very insightful and clear. And I know I'm not the only one because this research paper has actually been cited in about 80 other research papers in barely two years. Um, so so that's that's a lot of connectivity within the research community, um, which indicates that you know it's pretty great piece of work. So can you just tell us what led you to investigate IVC, high dose IVC, intravenous vitamin C, and why did you embark on writing this meta-analysis, um, you know, with your team? Yeah, well, my fascination for vitamin C was ignited 
about seven years ago, I think, when I discovered in my personal life that vitamin D and C in high dose can have therapeutic effects. Uh, and then I started doing more reading on it. And, um, and I, I think it's good to realize that vitamin C is an ancient and essential molecule of life with widespread biological functions. Its appearance during evolutionary times was probably very important for the development of life on Earth. And uh, all cells in our body um, take up vitamin C. They need vitamin C to function. It's the most important uh, antioxidant in our uh, biofluids, in blood. And, uh, and antioxidants are very important uh, because they can neutralize uh, the damage uh, done by free radicals. Um, and, then, and then vitamin C has a whole lot of other functions that have been discovered in more recent years as a uh, cofactor of many enzymes that uh, uh, get uh, the electron from vitamin C to drive their uh, activity. Uh, and, and that can explain why it can influence so many uh, biological processes in our body. So that sounds like kind of a essential underpinning, if you will, for, for health overall, which of course we know for cancer patients um, is amplified because our body is under increased stress, both from the cancer as well as from uh, the treatments, from many treatments. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, for example, um, vitamin C is very important for the synthesis and the structure of strong collagen. And of course, that's a very important connective tissue a structure that can help us uh, or can protect patients from cancer against spreads. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's involved in the synthesis of neurotransmitters, in steroid hormones, stress hormones, energy production, cholesterol metabolism, detoxification, iron absorption, and, and much more. So key for the healthy functioning or of the body, but also, of course, maybe even more key functions uh, to, to help patients uh, with cancer battle uh, their disease. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, the things that you mentioned, when I first was diagnosed, I didn't realize the connection between cancer and many of those things. But um, now I, I understand better, and we'll talk a little more later about how it is connected to, you know, iron absorption and, and, and lip processing of lipids and because all of those things actually contribute to whether the disease whether making an environment that's easy for the cancer to metastasize and spread or whether we're making it more difficult so um so it sounds like this is a is an important underpinning yes and uh, and then i think what i did not mention yet is the uh, important effects of vitamin c on the immune system eh, or our uh, bodily defense system and, and to underscore this important function eh, our immune cells have the highest concentrations of vitamin c in our body so it's very crucial for immune function and and other very high concentrations are in our brain in the pituitary and also in the, the adrenals for example so very important in the also to, to support our stress or system to handle stress and stress hormones so okay. um yeah and i so i think it's so such a basically from the evolutionary perspective an important molecule and humans lost it during evolution or sometime during the primates 
uh, evolution. Eh? Because we cannot synthesize it in our bodies. Monkeys cannot synthesize it and humans cannot synthesize it. And basically the rest of the animal world and the plant world, they, they make their own vitamin C. And they make more when they need it, when they're sick or under stress or injured. So basically the, the word, the vitamin C word is kind of uh, confusing because actually it's more like a hormone should be seen as like a multifunctional hormone and 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 also stress hormone so that that kind of implies that um yeah we need a lot of it and we should look at for how much we need we should look at what other animals make in their bodies that's okay i've never heard that before it's fascinating so let me just sum this up so what you're saying is that you know, at one point in time, probably all life synthesized their own. That means created their bodies had the ability to create their own vitamin C. But somewhere along the line, primates and then humans lost that ability. And so now the only way we can get vitamin C is to is to artificially get it. So ingest it uh, with through our food and, and what we eat or through uh, intravenous vitamin C, but somehow we have to get it externally. Whereas pretty much all the other animals and plants out there can make it themselves. Like they don't have that problem. They're, there's that big of a difference between yeah, indeed. And everybody else. Yeah, I'm a little bit jealous <laughs> on animals. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, we 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 lost. The, so basically, the last so is, uh, vitamin C is synthesized from glucose in a couple of enzymatic steps, and in the the last enzyme is not functional in uh, in 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 humans and and monkeys, and also in guinea pigs. So they are a nice model, uh, and and then there's a fruit bed. Basically, these these types of animals but the, the for the, the the vast majority can synthesize it and the warm-blooded uh, animals synthesize it in their liver cold-blooded animals synthesize it in their kidney and basically also in throughout during evolution when from cold-blooded to warm-blooded it moved the synthesis primary spot moved to the liver probably uh, it, the liver is much bigger can ac accommodate uh, much more to uh, to support the body with higher levels of uh, vitamin C. So I always think about it. I think most people, you know, think, oh, vitamin C, you take it when you're sick. But I don't know if they are associating it with stress. So uh, so it's actually necessary or works with our bodies, helps our bodies under times of stress. So that could be not just I have a cold, but any kind of stress, right? Yeah, and any kind of stress, and uh, uh, to for the production of stress hormones, you need vitamin C. So if you have a lot of stress, you will, uh, by definition, need more vitamin C. So in in animals, eh, who can that can synthesize their own, it's dynamically regulated. But we we in our bodies, it's absent. So we have to uh, take it through our diet. So either eat lots of vegetables and fruit, fresh, uh, as fresh as fresh, otherwise uh, it's lost, it's heat sensitive, um, or uh, supplement and uh, uh, to to get in the gram range, uh, supplementation is the, the solution in, uh, let's say, for the modern day uh, humans. 
Wow. And um, so in an average person, you said in the gram range, about how many grams for just a normal, healthy person yeah. looking at which to combat a lot of this stress? Um, and do we, can we take it at one time or is it, do we need to divide it in the day? Well, it's probably a good idea to supplement two to three grams in divided doses over the day because we, um, uh, what the body cannot take up, uh, it's, uh, it's sec secreted through the kidneys, excreted. Um, so we have to continuously uh, have a supply, and uh, and and that is best done by uh, supplementing two or three times or more, depending. Uh, if 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 you're sick, it's a good idea to do more. Mm -hmm. Let's think about cancer patients specifically. Going back to your research paper that you did, um, you talk about high dose vitamin C. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between what we're talking about with a you know relatively healthy person taking some you know extra little extra vitamin C or getting getting it through a little extra fresh fruits and vegetables versus the cancer patient that might need a you know a different more intense strategy if you want it to be an anti-cancer strategy? Yeah, right. So what the review is about, that's about high-dose vitamin C. So that's really a therapeutic use of vitamin C. And that's a whole different ballpark because that needs to be given intravenously in uh, in in like uh, mega, mega doses. So we're talking here one at least one gram a kilogram. So a 70 kilogram person would get 70, 70, 70 grams intravenous um so uh and and this was kind of pioneered in the in the 70s uh by linus pauling so this is when when i started reading on vitamin c i stumbled upon this literature and uh and uh, and the documentation of um yeah also there's that there was clinical experience and uh, so, so this is like a whole different, so it's very important to discriminate eh? oral use of vitamin C, then uh, eh, that can only reach up to uh, in blood in the 220 micromolar range versus uh, intravenous vitamin C that, that can go up into the 15, 20, 30 millimolar range. And that's the range that you need to kill cancer cells that, that we know from in vitro studies. So just to be clear, um, if we want to make this um, an anti-cancer strategy, um, maybe to augment standard care that we're getting, um, if I wanted to, if I wanted to, uh, if I wanted to have a lot high dose of vitamin C, I could not go take a whole bunch of or orally take a whole bunch of vitamin C tablets and it, it would not work, right? It, it's a, it is a very different concept. It acts very differently in your body to take, you know, an extra vitamin C tablet um, in the morning with breakfast versus even if you were to take a whole bunch of those, it's very different than uh, vit vitamin C that you get intravenously, right? Uh, yes, because if you take it orally, at some point uh, the uptake me mechanisms in the gut get overwhelmed, and uh, so there's only uh, so much that they can take up. 
and then the kidney starts uh, excreting it. So th that's why uh, with oral uh, use, we cannot go higher. It's tightly regulated. Um, and, and with the intravenous administration, we can bypass these uh, control mechanisms. Okay, so for cancer patients then, just to be clear, we're talking about high-dose vitamin C that's done intravenously um, as, as um, a potential anti-cancer strategy. And then moving forward in this discussion, that's really what we're going to, going to focus on um, in, in the next bit of our conversation. So um, because there is a big transition there, and I believe one uh, taking it orally is is a um, antioxidant reaction in your body versus through intravenous vitamin C, which is pro-oxidant. Is that true? So our bodies even process it differently? Um, well, the for the cancer cells, it's pro-oxidant ah, um, in these high doses, whereas for the rest of the body, it, it, it can benefit from the antioxidant effects. And that has to do with the biology of the cancer cell, why it's a pro-oxidant. And I think we'll go into that in a minute later. So you um, wrote this amazing research, which I loved. Um, and I one of the reasons I liked it so much is that it, it dovetailed with what I kind of believe in my gut to be true, which is that... Um, Layering layering different strategies on can help cancer patients do better in the long run. Um, in fact, in the 1960s, you know, this idea isn't new. In the 60s, oncologists discovered that when they combined chemotherapies, uh, patients had better outcomes. They started putting two together, three together, 40. And now patients might get a cocktail of six or seven different chemotherapies, um, all to combat a particular cancer that they have. But this combined effect, because cancers grow through so many different pathways, this combined effect can be more powerful, can shut shut it down on, on multiple levels. So your research was so interesting to me because um, uh, your summary in particular um, showed intravenous vitamin C when used in conjunction with standard care. Uh, you have this terrific chart that uses symbols and colors to indicate the impact of IVC when used with standard care treatments. So I could look up my drug in particular, tratuzumab, and see that there was an in vitro study showing enhanced efficacy for the drug I'm on, tratuzumab, when combined with IVC. So in total, cancer patients out there, take note, in total, there were 59 different drugs or treatments in your study um, that you addressed. So cancer patients can actually go to this chart, and we will put it in the show notes, a link to this research, uh, so that they can look up their drug that they're on and see what research has been done with IVC and their drug. I thought that was fascinating. So can you tell me, you know, prior to this analysis that you did, were you aware that IVC had been tested with so many different cancer drugs? I was, I was amazed. Um, are there any particular findings of efficacy or synergy that, that really stood out to you? I mean, is this, 
Is it just me that got super excited about this? Or what was your impression when you started to write this report? Well, yeah, I was uh, uh, actually quite amazed about uh, the work uh, out there, what was done. And uh, when when I started reading that, I thought this is almost too good to be true. Uh, and all these uh, anti-cancer effects and all these combinations that were already tested and, and most of them uh, synergistic. So, um, yeah, when I kind of discovered this whole literature um, then five years ago, I, I put it all already some years ago. I put it together in a PowerPoint. And when it was my turn for the department staff meeting, brainstorm evening, I presented this work on vitamin C uh, or the high dose uh, in the cancer context to to kind of let the, my oncology colleagues know and uh, and share the excitement and 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 did they know this? No, they actually did did not know, and they were actually uh, most of them were actually quite interested, intrigued. Uh, so we had some great discussions. And uh, since this was also new information for them, th this is what really made me decide to to write this all this data out there up in a nice review. Um, do my or our best, I should say. I did it together with uh, the help of the, or uh, together with PhD student Andrea Vajas, postdoc uh, Francesca Butcher, and also a master student who did her literature thesis on this topic. So we really did our best to make comprehensive figures, to summarize all the relevant details in the tables, to make it really easy for oncologists. I ma mainly had the oncologists in mind to as a, as a lookup thing, uh, and also to uh, yeah to to make them aware of the wealth of information and that it can really be safely combined with basically all the therapies out there that they're using. And um, so I'm very happy to hear from you that also it works uh, for you. And now uh, I really want to, uh, I, I also decided to start my own research line in the lab with high dose C, uh, testing it on cancer cells to see for myself if, if this really works. And, uh, and so, so it really brought a whole uh, range of new things. That's amazing. Um, I, I yes, and I I really encourage cancer patients to go to this study, print this chart out, and bring it into your oncologist because I I know my oncologist was not aware, and uh, it, it's a simple chart that summarizes all the research, and you just look up your drug. In fact. Cisplatin, for example, is one drug that I know many, many cancer patients, many different types of cancers are treated with this particular chemotherapy. And, and cisplatin had a number of, of different studies that had been done with high dose vitamin C. Yeah, I think uh, most or yeah, a, a lot of studies uh, made use of platina based uh, chemotherapies. And I think there, of course, the, there's a lot of uh, toxicity related to that. So I think there the need to uh, counter, uh, also counterbalance this toxicity with vitamin C is highly, uh, highly desired. So I think it was great to see that uh, all these preclinical studies showing synergy, but also that there is uh, several uh, clinical uh, phase one, phase two studies done 
showing the the safety and the feasibility also in the clinic. So um well and 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 then the 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 so the cell line studies show synergy the mouse studies also show that it can really reduce the tox from the chemo it decreases white blood cell loss weight loss acetous formation hepatotoxicity toxicity of the liver uh, lipid oxidation and other uh, things like cardiomyopathy so uh, in the mouse, this, it's clearly uh, beneficial. And then in the, 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 uh, from the clinical studies, or actually one study that goes from saline to mouse to phase one to clinical trial is, uh, is the study that was published in Cancer Cell a few years back on uh, glioblastoma and non-small cell lung cancer. And uh, the non-small cell lung cancer uh, part of the study, their vitamin C uh, high-dose intravenous was combined with uh, the platina-based treatment. And also in the cell line studies, the cisplatin was used and it really showed synerg uh, yeah, uh, synergizing effects in the cell lines. And then, um, and then the, the trial, which of course is only an early stage uh, trial, at least it, it underscored that vitamin C or pharmacological doses are safe and well tolerated when combined with this standard uh, therapy in both glioblastoma and non-small cell lung cancer. And uh, yeah, this, this study was not powered for efficacy. Uh, yet, uh, what the authors write in the in the paper is that overall survival was better than historic data for comparable populations, and that of the glioblastoma patients, even a few uh, four out of eleven remained alive at the time of writing, and one of them uh, even didn't show any evidence of disease anymore, as based on MRI. So these are very encouraging results. And there are several uh, clinical trials, uh, also randomized some, that, that show similar uh, results. Wow. Um, okay, so there's two things that I just wanted to capture at this moment. Um, first, going back to what you were saying earlier, was that um, the high-dose vitamin C was shown to uh, help with some of the issues around cancer patients treatment. So um, putting aside for a moment, trying to kill the cancer cells, the fact that the medications that so many of us are on are so toxic and we suffer from things like cardiomyopathy, um, I think it's important to, to point out what you were saying earlier because many cancer patients can actually die because of the cancer treatments. So for example, I'm on a drug um, called tratuzumab, and it has shown that it can create problems uh, with the heart, right? And so I have to have an echocardiogram every three months to monitor my heart. So uh, the first point you were making that I want cancer patients to take note of is that high-dose vitamin C has been shown to mitigate those negative other effects. Uh, yes, and the, the high dose intravenous, of course, is a, a great fast way to get it. But I think uh, the in the days, so uh, these these uh, administrations usually are only two or three times a week. 
So I think in the in-between days, uh, um, to, to help with all these other side effects of chemo, I think the uh, um, high-dose oral supplementation could also be already beneficial. Okay. Um, but for sure, the, the intravenous uh, administration uh, helps with that a lot. But the intravenous part is especially important eh, to get the cytotoxicity for the cancer cell. Right. So that gets to the second thing that you were saying. So, so the high dose vitamin C is, um, will give you this other effects to help with toxicity and quality of life issues and cardiomyopathy and things like that. So it helps those things, but also helps with actually killing cancer cells. And that's the research study that you were mentioning about uh, glioblastoma and non-small cell lung cancer, uh, that research study from 2017, which again, we'll put into the show notes so that people can look this up for themselves. Um, and, and that was the second thing I wanted to highlight because that's exactly why we're doing this podcast. Here we have some research that has been taken from uh, the micro preclinical level. So really understanding what happens in a Petri dish, what happens in a mouse model, and then translating that into human clinical trials, phase one and phase two, where we get very good results across the board of that research. So in the different types of methodologies, we're seeing consistently positive results and uh, for eliminating cancer cells, for, for moving cancer patients in the right direction. And this has been layered on top of, in the, in the phase two and phase one clinical trials, layered on top of standard care. Here's something that's positively happening all the way through phase two, but unfortunately, we don't see phase three trials. And without a phase three trial, it's never ever going to be part of standard care and, and where we can walk in and expect this, uh, our, our doctor, our oncologist to be giving this to us. You know, we've gotten to this point of phase one, phase two, but so much of this research stalls. And then people don't hear about it and they don't know about it. Uh, yes. And I, I would say uh, there is huge biological rationale eh? because we know why it works and how it works in, in, uh, 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 for at least for the most, most well-known mechanisms. And, and a lot of details uh, were also unraveled in this uh, cancer cell study. So it was known already for a bit longer that in these high doses, vitamin C uh, works as a pro-oxidant, eh? not as an antioxidant, but as a pro-oxidant. And it results in high levels of hydrogen peroxide in the cancer cells that are really selectively toxic to the cancer cells. And uh, and that's and then uh, and a lot of details uh, are, 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 there's a good understanding why this is, because these cancer cells they are really basically messed up weird cells. They have uh, redox imbalance, which means that there's a lot of oxidative stress in the, in, the, in the cancer cells due to their increased metabolism, among others. They have uh, more uh, higher levels of uh, iron in them or the, the, what's called the label iron pool and, and vitamin C in high dose interacts with that. Um, 
the, the cancer cells have defective mitochondria causing this, uh, this oxidative stress. They have the decreased antioxidant defense uh, uh, system. So that's why it's really selectively toxic to cancer cells. And then uh, and normal cells, they are not bothered because they have antioxidant uh, system in place. So that they only get the benefits, not the, the pro-oxidant effects. And then also some studies have shown, or, or we know that cancer cells, they... Uh, to support their glycolytic metabolism, they need a lot of glucose. So they have upregulated the glucose transporter on the cell surface of their cells. And, and, uh, and what is so interesting is that vitamin C, it's, it's synthesized from glucose. It has a very similar structure to glucose. So uh, vitamin C in uh, uh, oxidized form, especially, can be taken up by uh, the glutarous transporters on the cancer cells. And uh, and then that's like a Trojan works like a Trojan horse because then um, oxidized vitamin C is taken up and then inside the cell it's it's reduced again and then this further uh, depletes the antioxidant defense of the the cancer cells. So it's really a very nice uh, um, yeah targeting uh, targeting effect. And, uh, and highly synergistic with chemo and radiotherapy that also act as pro-oxidant. So, um, so it, it can help uh, drive the cancer cells over the cliff, while the, the normal cells and the immune system benefits. And this is especially important because their cancer cells are very, oftentimes, really low in their vitamin C. So there, there are some, some of them are at scurvy levels. So with this can really help their body uh, a lot. And, and then there is more uh, like more like secondary effects, you could call them, huh? how um, vitamin C works uh, in high dose to, to uh, beat cancer. Uh, and that is more in the cofactor activity of, uh, of vitamin C. So had that I already mentioned it. So it helps support uh, collagen or connective tissue structures uh, in our body. That can help impede uh, cancer spread. It can a uh, very important mechanism is also it can inhibit hypoxia inducible factor activity, and then uh, HIF is broken down and HIF is, uh, is is associated with more aggressive disease. And it's important to get uh, blood supply to the fast growing tumor. So it's a way to uh, cut off uh, the fuel. Um, it, it can also help, uh, this, these were studies in pancreatic cancer, reverse epithelial mesenchymal transition. That's a process that's also implicated in uh, cancer metastasis and poor prognosis, can help reverse that. Uh, and then another more recent discovered mechanism also is the reversal of aberrant DNA methylation by uh, through its cofactor activity for the TET uh, enzymes, which results in uh, reactivation of tumor suppressor genes uh, that can help keep the cancer uh, in check and uh, reinstate apoptosis. And then, of course, last but not least, it can help uh, boost the immune response. And I, I think for this, it's also to basically uh, help our the host attack the cancer and um, 
it's uh, white, vitamin C has widespread uh, functions in the immune system. It helps with myeloid and T-cell differentiation, polarization, T-cell maturation, activation, B-cell development, cytokine production, and it ha can enhance uh, the natural killer cells that are very important to uh, attack cancer cells. Wow. Okay. So what I heard was that A, it's sneaky. So it can be the Trojan horse. I love that analogy. The Trojan horse to get into tumor cells, into cancer cells, uh, because of its similarity to the glucose um, molecule. So it's sneaky. It gets in. It can cut off the fuel for the cancer cell. So making it harder to grow, metastasize, progress, and harder to even stay alive. So it, it can kill a cancer cell that way. It provides a reversal of, um, of what we see where a tumor suppressor gene might get turned off, meaning if it was suppressing tumors, it wasn't letting the tumors grow, that tumor suppressor gene when we get cancer sometimes is, is, is turned off and now there's no suppressor. So the tumor can grow unchecked, but the vitamin C, high dose vitamin C, can reactivate that tumor suppressor gene, and that also allows it to help um, kill the cancer cell and avoid metastasis. And then on top of that, we also see a boost or an elevation of immune response. So T cells, like the killer, uh, natural killer cells, um, we've talked about T cells and, and B cells. Um, so we can boost those. And we know um, now so many therapies for cancer patients that have a lot of promise are immunotherapies. So um, are we thinking that this would work synergistically also with immunotherapy? Would, that, that comes to my mind. Yes. So, so when I was, uh, yeah, because of these very important uh, immune functions, one could hypothesize that the combination of uh, high dose vitamin C together with immunotherapies, checkpoint inhibitors, uh, is a good idea. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I hypothesized that also a couple of years ago. Um, and then, uh, in uh, like two years ago, there there were two uh, preclinical studies in the mouse where exactly this combination was tested. And also there, it's, uh, it's, it's really uh, beneficial to combine uh, high-dose C with immunotherapy. And what was also interesting is that the note that the authors made is that it's very important to do this in an immune-competent mouse, because uh, in, in a lot of the studies use these immune-deficient mice, but you get much more of the uh, high-dose vitamin C effect in immune competent mouse, and that kind of uh, confirms the idea that the the effects of high dose C are both through the their direct effects on the tumor, but also the more indirect effects via the uh, immune stimulatory function. Okay. Yeah, they're all immune checkpoint inhibitors. Yeah. Okay. Um. So the, the ones tested were anti PD one and anti CTL four. Okay. Okay, good. Because I think, you know, what's nice is for some cancer patients, I, I'm, I'm hoping that people will see themselves or hear something in these podcasts that said, hey, that's me. 
you know, I can relate what you're saying to my care. And uh, so I think it's nice to be able to point out to them um, exactly what checkpoint inhibitors, because that might be something that's on their list. And that gets us to what I'm hoping you'll talk about next, which is um, certain uh, mutations that seem to have a lot of um, reactivity with a high dose vitamin C. So in other words, there's been a lot of promise in research with certain uh, tumor mutations. Can you speak a little bit to that? Um, well, both the preclinical and the clinical research shows that patients actually with a large variety of genetic aberrations may benefit from the combination uh, treatment of high dose C with uh, standard uh, uh, of care therapies. And uh, what is uh, encouraging to see that this also includes hard to treat patients with, for example, KRAS mutations. Uh, KRAS mutations are found in 90% of the pancreatic cancers, 40% uh, of the colon cancers, 25% uh, or so in the non-small cell lung cancer. So, and that's a mutation that uh, is uh, gives poor prognosis. Uh, and um, so, so even those patients uh, can benefit. Uh, a lot of uh, research has focused on uh, pancreatic cancers, eh, where most of them are KDOS mutant. And uh, and there's also what there's a clinical trial that that shows uh, well that these patients uh, had improved performance status. Uh, their mean time to progression was uh, less, or, or no, was uh, much longer than what would have been expected. Again, from comparable historic populations, uh, and. Um, and and this was then the in in the context of gemcitabine. So there was a significant improvement in compared to trials that use gemcitabine alone. Um, and and this was and and there's another trial that was published in Cancer Research in 2018, also in pancreatic uh, cancer. Nice randomized study that showed the same same results. So a lot of promising, let's say, very early stage uh, studies. Also in metastatic colorectal cancer, where um, actually that study reported comparable efficacy in patients with wild type and uh, mutant uh, ROS and BRAF. And besides uh, these authors, uh, besides a favorable safety profile, they also reported potential clinical efficacy with a disease control rate of in total 96%, uh, combining uh, partial response and stable disease in the population. So based on these promising results, actually they are planning a phase three study. Oh, that's which exciting. Is highly needed, yes. Yes, it is highly needed. So um, that study uh, that you're saying that will move to phase three is um, with KRAS or, or BRAF uh, mutations, is that what you're saying? Uh, I think in that study, the, the they include uh, all uh, mute, uh, wild type and mutant, but I know that there is a study in the U.S. Mm -hmm. from the Stand Up to Cancer uh, effort. They are specifically focusing on the, the KROS PRAF mutant setting Okay. All in right. metastatic colorectal cancer. Okay. We will uh, make sure in the show notes to also post uh, clinical trials that are associated with some of the things that we're talking about. So cancer patients yeah. um, look up and see whether they might be um, someone that would be a good fit 
for some of these trials that are underway or coming up soon. Can you tell me um, what about breast cancer and prostate cancer? I haven't heard very much about those two cancers in particular, and they affect so many people. Would IVC be a potentially beneficial strategy for those two cancers? Uh, Yes, sure. I don't think that there's a reason uh, why they uh, shouldn't be. Uh, I think the the studies out there probably are focused a little bit more on the hard-to-treat cancers, and that's maybe a reason why they're uh, underrepresented, underrepresented. Uh, at least from our own results in the cancer cell line panel, uh, we had a couple of breast cancer cell lines in there, a couple of prostate cancer cell lines in there. Uh, the breast cancer cell lines, actually, they were quite sensitive or or, or were uh, yeah, relative sensitive on the more sensitive end. And the prostate cancers were cell, cell lines, at least the ones that we had in our culture, were um, a little bit more to the higher uh, the millimolar dose range. Uh, but still, uh, they, they were like that. The highest one was at five or or eight millimolar, uh, and which is still in the uh, uh, well well below the clinically achievable range. So at least from the preclinical data, uh, there's no reason uh, why they shouldn't benefit. And also the the data uh, in the review, there are multiple uh, preclinical studies uh, in breast cancer cell lines and prostate cancer cell lines also looking at combinations with chemo. Yeah, and then maybe good to add to this. So we did our own experiment in the lab where we tested 50, 51 different uh, cancer cell lines representing different uh, tumor types and uh, and, and also uh, k mutant and wild types. And, uh, and basically what was uh, nice to see is that all 51 cell lines um, were... Uh, killed in the clinically achievable range. So their IC50 values range from low, from, from let's say the micro, micromolar sensitivities to low millimolar sensitivities, five to 10 millimolar. And when patients get the IV doses, uh, it can go, it goes up to, can go up to 30 millimolar, 15 to 30 millimolar. So uh, basically all the cell lines that we tested were well, uh, within this range. Um, yeah, is there anything to um, expand upon in terms of what does a patient do if they want to do high-dose IVC? Well, the what we see in the literature studies or reported in the scientific literature, I think a lot of it is determined also by practical, for practical and financial reasons probably. So the, but it's important, the, the studies that showed Efficacy or signs of efficacy and clinical benefits also uh, uh, used did frequencies of two to three times a week and doses that were in the 1.5 uh, gram per kilogram range, so 75 uh, grams at least, 200 grams. And um, and in mono, I think if if it's used in monotherapy, um, then I think three times a week would be the minimum for at least the duration of probably twelve weeks or uh, three three months or so, and and then maybe continue 
uh, maybe a little bit less frequent for another year or as, as I would always say as long as possible and as frequent as possible yeah and in the combination treatments it's oftentimes kind of uh, for logistic reasons then people come go in when they get their radio or their chemo and if that's two times a week then the clinical combination study uh, does two times a week because then doing three times a week would be logistically uh, too difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but at least there are good results obtained in the combination studies where, where a schedule of two times a week was used, but at least it has to be then every week, ideally every week, and then also for the, at least the duration of eight weeks. That, that Those were the studies... Uh, minimum duration of eight weeks. Those were the studies that that showed signs of of benefits. Mm -hmm. um, and were there um, was it kind of ultimately associated with a level of um, vitamin C in your plasma that they were trying to hit and and kind of keep a a certain level? Yeah, it's important. Uh, so usually it starts with a, a dose escalation in every patient, uh, and then uh, in which the dose is determined that can uh, reach targets plasma values of at least 15 millimolar. 15 millimolar. And, 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 and that's usually done in phase one. And then for phase two, a dose is picked. And in practice, this is between 75 to 90 grams. It, it looks like every center kind of rediscovers this. <laughs> <laughs> and I think every... Patient, uh, and I think it's a good idea to in every patient to do this escalation because every person is different. But but a, a good estimation can be made from the body weight calculation. Um, but it's uh, I think usually it's I'm not a clinician, but uh, the build up is usually done in in a few steps from like 25 grams and then to 50 and uh, up to. What, yeah, usually 1.5 grams. Uh, with 1.5 grams per kilogram, usually the target range is uh, is reached. Okay. So uh, you touch on something that was interesting, which is um, sensitivity. So um, what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is that some cancer cell lines just might be more sensitive, meaning they react at lower levels. Uh, than other cancer cell lines. So while there might be benefit, it might be a range of dose levels that you need to take in order to hit that efficacy amount. Is that true? Yeah, some are more sensitive than others, but when uh, patients are treated in the clinic, we know we don't know who is who. Um, and I think we, we don't need to, to know. I think in the clinic, uh, we, we just do the better safe than sorry approach and escalate up to 15 to 30 millimolar plasma levels. And, and basically with those levels, um, the um, basically all the cell lines will be killed. Or sorry, cell lines. <laughs> I mean, potentially the it, ca it can kill uh, the tumor cells. Um, and and uh, I, I think it's and and in the 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 levels can be maintained for one one or two hours. And also, we mimicked in our cell line experiments. We mimicked this because we only uh, give the drug or 
vitamin C, ascorbic acid, for we pulsed it two hours and then we take it away, we wash the cells and we, we, we replace the medium. So that kind of mimics the situation in the clinic where the, the peak levels are there for an hour or so. And it, it depends a bit on the way it's done. Uh, ideally, it's maintained as long as possible. In some studies, it was maintained for two or three hours okay. at, at this high high peak level, and then it uh, it falls uh, off again. And and based on that, you can understand that uh, more frequent dosing is always better. I see. I see. So even with IVC, um, you know. Every day is better than every Daily other day. is better. The Linus Pauling, the early day Linus Pauling study did daily. Okay. It was actually a much lower dose, but it was done lay daily. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, if you, if you had to, if you could make any, if you could make any decision you want to, you would tell a, a prospective user of IVC that they might want to go do this daily. Um, but we have seen that every other day, so like three days a week, for example. Three, is three days a week is a nice compromise, I think. And uh, if you, uh, let's say, if your partner can do the IVs, for example, uh, maybe the it would be nice to, the first four, six weeks to have it daily, if that is feasible. Especially if you do it as mono treatment. Uh, in a combination treatment, I think it can be less frequent. But the, basically the message is the more the better. In a mono treatment, you mean the only treatment they'd be getting is the IVC versus a layered approach, which would be standard care um, chemotherapy drugs, for example, plus IVC, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and the mono treatment, I think, would be probably beneficial, especially for people who are so um, weak that they cannot get the chemotherapy. And, and I, I know from my colleagues that uh, in some or yeah, that there is, uh, I think, for what I in non-small cell lung cancer, for example, people with metastatic disease, I think uh, there's a significant proportion that is actually not fit enough to get the, the, this combination chemo. I see. So it can and, be... And some people and some patients, they don't want it. That also happens. Yeah. yeah. But and, and then you need to... Uh, well, only when the... So the oncologists or the clinicians, they are bound uh, to their uh, protocols and only when people are really out of options then uh, more things are uh, possible but you need to find a physician who can do it and is willing to do it yeah yeah okay now you mentioned and you touched on safety um what do we need to know about safety is this safe for everyone? Do we need to do any testing prior to embarking on a high-dose vitamin C regimen um, to make sure that our bodies will tolerate it well? Um, you mentioned kind of escalating over, over a bit of time just to make sure that, um, that we seem to be tolerating it well. What do we need to be thinking about for safety? 
Uh, well, luckily, the, the clinical trials show it's, uh, it's very safe and tolerable. And also, actually, and that's not a surprise, because for, for many decades, complementary and alternative medicine practitioners have administered high-dose uh, ascorbate or vitamin C off-label without apparent toxicity. Uh, but it is important, and that's what they also do, and also is being done in these clinical trials, that patients are properly screened for normal renal function and absence of glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase uh, deficiency. Also, that they don't have iron overload or uh, a lot of uh, kidney stones. So they do screen uh, you a little bit. Um, you mentioned a deficiency or a uh, glucose 6-phosphate. Can you... Dehydro <laughs> glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency yes. that can lead to hemolysis or, or, or right. some, some problems. Is that rare? I've never yeah. heard of that. It, it, is, it, is, it is rare, but it's okay. good to, to know this, to check okay. this. And yeah. you can test for it. Um, uh, yes. Could test yeah. for it. So you yeah, just they can easily, in the clinic, they test for that, yes. Okay. Um, so otherwise, we find it to be very safe. I, I have to say, in all the studies that I've read, that's been one of the universal findings is that their patients, not only is this something that um, is very well tolerated, but that it had, you know, ancillary benefits. So besides killing cancer cells, you had all these other positive benefits that you felt better. And when how often is it that you a cancer anti-cancer strategy also makes you feel better? That's <laughs> to yeah. me that was the that was a big win-win. That does not happen very frequently. Exactly. Um, so that I thought was pretty pretty awesome. There has been some work suggesting that high levels of antioxidants may not be good for cancer patients um, versus if you don't have cancer and you're just trying to prevent ever having to go on this journey, which is terrific. But if you do have cancer, um, is there any danger with ingesting high levels of, so orally taking vitamin C that's working as a antioxidant versus the high dose vitamin C, which is working as a pro-oxidant? Um, should we be afraid of that? Well, fear that high levels of antioxidant might reduce effectiveness of chemotherapy and radiation for cancer patients turns out to be unwarranted if you look at the practice. Uh, studies that have been performed over many decades show that antioxidants orally used don't harm cancer patients, even when given in conjunction with chemotherapy. And instead, it's actually, it seems to be more the opposite, that there is a strong positive association of antioxidant use with increased survival. So again, I want to reiterate, patients with cancer are generally very deficient in vitamin C with det detrimental consequences for their quality of life and immune system function. Um, vitamin C deficiency can, can result in a long list of symptoms because it's really needed by every cell in the body. And, and we humans have this genetic defect that predisposes us for hyposcobemia. Yeah, so just to recap that, because I, I still can't believe that I, I, I had never heard this before I started speaking with you, is that, you know, cancer patients' bodies are under a great deal of stress. 
not only from the tumor and the tumor stress that that's putting on us physically, but also the mental stress of being given a diagnosis of cancer, right? So you're, the stress levels for cancer patients are usually very high. And because we cannot make our own vitamin C, that stress level is sucking all the vitamin C that we have, um, normal levels, right? Normal levels of eating. It's sucking all of that. And it still needs more because we're in such a heightened sense of a heightened state of stress. Uh, yes, that's uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah, so it's very important for patients with cancer to realize this. It is. I, and I had never heard of it. So I, I really appreciate that. That but but I I think for every every person living uh, a busy life in a modern society, yeah, yeah, that's true. Right, it's not just cancer patients, but we see it it, it exacerbated in yeah. cancer patients. So uh, before we close our interview, um, I would love to ask you about the future. What do you see as the next steps? for cancer patients actively looking for new strategies to help them outperform cancer? Well, thanks for asking this question. So my, my lab works on a mass spectrometry based strategy to individualize uh, therapy selection based on an uh, uh, individual patient's uh, tumor uh, profile, uh, the proteome and the phosphoproteome. And, uh, and we also built uh, a data analysis pipeline that can reveal uh, which uh, kinases are active in the, in the tumor. Huh? And kinases drive a lot of the oncogenic signaling. And, and from the proteome, we, we can get other biology and uh, cancer hallmark activity. Also, which immune uh, subsets are in the tumor. And, uh, and in the past years, we've worked very hard to to basically to get the pipeline going and to um, to do all kinds of preclinical studies to show the value of this uh, this approach uh, what we call like a single sample approach to uh, to basically predict based on a tumor proteome and phosphoproteome what kind of uh, kinase inhibitors uh, could be beneficial for this particular uh, cancer cell or tumor and we've shown this in colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer, leukemias, and this has been published in recent years. Uh, now we're also doing retrospective studies where we uh, analyze uh, uh, needle, tumor needle biopsies that were obtained in, uh, in clinical trials to, uh, and, and generate, uh, we generated the profiles and then we correlate to the, the patient response and, and we can at pretreatment already, uh, let's say, predict response or resistance. So um, yeah, altogether, um, I'm, I'm very excited by this, uh, this research. I mean, these are exciting times for us because I'm, um, I'm basically, I'm around a little bit longer. So <laughs> I've, been, I've been doing um, all my kind of my whole scientific life since the early 90s. I've been doing, uh, or mid-90s, I should say, when I started my PhD, uh, working on uh, mass spectrometry and in, in the beginning but to answer biological questions. And now we're answering uh, more biomedical or clinical questions using mass spectrometry. 
and and the field in the past 30 years evolved so much the machines are super fast super sensitive we now have all the bioinformatic tools we have the genome sequence eh, that totally catalyzed also the whole the whole proteomics field so i and i really hope i can uh, basically in the coming maybe 10 years or so that uh, that i have probably in my uh, active research life um yeah, to bring to translate these findings uh, to the clinic, and uh, yeah, my dream is to do a profile phosphoproteome proteome-based uh, clinical trials, and uh, together with the clinicians, um, yeah, to to really uh, in a randomized study show the benefit of this approach versus standard of care. Um, but of course, before we can do this, we need to uh, get the funding to do this also. Yeah. And and the only thing to add is that I also would be especially interested in combining vitamin C with immunotherapy and with metabolic approaches that patients can do themselves, like fasting mimicking diet. I encourage all of the patients out there to continue to plug into the work that um, is being done uh, in this field and to look at opportunities to fundraise and support the research community because this is the future. In the meantime, I'm encouraging patients everywhere to layer on strategies, to try to improve standard care with additional ideas and therapies, keeping our bodies healthy, and perhaps uh, IVC is going to be right for you to consider. And um, and maybe then it'll help extend your outcomes in a positive direction while we all um, wait for a big cure that we're all hoping for in the future. So thank you very much for coming. Um, I, again, I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you, Mary Beth, uh, for this uh, opportunity. Um, uh, I, I should emphasize that I'm a biologist. I'm not a medical doctor, so everything we're discussing here is for uh, educational purposes. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. And now an important announcement. All the information that was provided today was for educational purposes only. I'm a patient, just like you. I am not a licensed or accredited physician, therapist, or clinical researcher. All information provided is not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, therapist, nutritionist, or any other qualified healthcare professional.